Hello and welcome to episode 11 of The George Sanders Show. This is a special episode this week. Normally on the show we talk about an old movie and a new-ish movie, but this week we're going to talk about 20 movies. <laughs> it's our uh, first annual hypothetical sight and sound top 10 ballot best movies of all time sort of show. And why do we do that this time of year, Sean? Uh, it's just a, an annual tradition. Uh, normally, on my on my blog for the last five years or so, I've done a, a big list of the top movies of all time right around Labor Day weekend. And we're, we're doing the show this week because I, I am incapable of reading a calendar <laughs> and thought that this was actually Labor Day weekend when, in fact, it was last weekend. I... I... I have to put it out there, I did suggest last weekend, you know, when we were planning episodes, you know, about a month ago, and you said, no, 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 no let's do it the 6th. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it caught me by surprise. What, what can I say? I don't, uh, I don't get out much. I don't really have reason to look at a calendar. No. Calendars are stupid. Anyway, uh, the, the basic idea is we're going to present a, a list of 10 great movies. Now, they're not necessarily the, our 10 favorite movies, they're not necessarily the movies we think are the 10 best movies, but the idea is that if we had a ballot for the Sight and Sound poll, which is the, the kind of most prestigious critics poll of, of best movies of all time, if we had a ballot, which 10 movies would we include? And this is something we did last year on our respective blogs, and uh, there'll be links to that in the show, and we'll, we'll go over actually what we picked last year. But this year, we're we're picking another 10, and we're excluding all of the films that were on our list last year. Oh, we are? News to me. <laughs> I've got two on here that, that are from my list last year. But I, but I think our lists are different, though, because, you know, you've been doing this for five years. Last year, I kind of made mine on a whim, and mine was kind of my definitive top 10 list of all time, which, you know, definitive is kind of ridiculous uh, term when it comes to picking 10 movies, but... So I, I made an effort to not rely on that list, but I also felt it would be remiss if I ignored it completely because those movies are totally amazing. So I'm okay, bucking so, your rules here. So 18 of our 20 movies <laughs> will be ones that were not on our list last year and might fail to follow the rules for two of them. But that's okay. We, we will allow that. They're, they're, they're rule-breaking movies, so bring it on. I guess let's go over what the actual Sight and Sound top 10 was sure. from last year, and then we'll go over what our lists were last year. Um, and you can leave off the two <laughs> if you like. And then we'll talk about our different uh, criteria. So this was the results of the critics' poll last year. And, and Sight and Sound is a British film magazine put out by the British Film Institute, and they polled hundreds of critics from around the world, and they compiled the, their top 10 vote-getters. And the top 10 as of last year was... Vertigo, Alfred Hitchcock, Citizen Kane by Orson Welles, uh, Tokyo Story by Yasujiro Ozu, The Rules of the Game by Jean Renoir, uh, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans by F.W. Murnau, 2001 A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick, The Searchers by John Ford, Man with a Movie Camera by Ziga Vertov, and The Passion of Joan of Arc by Carl Theodore Dreyer, and in 10th place was Eight and a Half by Federico Fellini. So what was your top 10 last year? Uh, well, my top 10, excluding the ones I'll be talking about later in the show, um, in chronological order, they were uh, Sherlock Jr. from Buster Keaton, uh, Duck Soup, Leo McCary's Marx Brothers film, 
Snow White and the Seven Dwarves from Walt Disney, um, Seven Samurai from Akira Kurosawa, Rear Window from uh, Alfred Hitchcock, Pennies from Heaven from, uh, what's his face, Herbert Ross, uh, In the Mood for Love from Wong Kar Wai, and Terrence Malick's The New World. And my, my top ten for last year was uh, Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa, Chunking Express by Wong Kar Wai, uh, Sunrise by Murnau, Casablanca by Michael Curtiz, Pierre Lafoe by Jean-Luc Godard, Night of the Hunter by Charles Lawton, La Commune, Paris 1871 by Peter Watkins, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, Rio Bravo from Howard Hawks, and finally The Red Shoes by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. And we actually had a, I had a deal last year where I was going to watch Eraserhead because uh, it was one of the highest vote-getters in the Sight and Sound poll that I hadn't seen yet. And you were going to watch La Commune, Paris 1871. I'm still working on it. I... I watched Eraserhead. <laughs> you did. I want to see it. I, I want to see La Commune. I, I'm really excited about it because it's the one film on your list uh, that I hadn't seen. Um, and I, I'm meaning to get to it. I've been busy. It is like an eight-hour drama. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Eraserhead's what? 90 minutes? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So those are our lists from last year. Besides your rule of not picking from... Last year's list, did you have other rules that you applied to this year's list? With the idea of it being a ballot, I want it to be representative of all of the things that I like in cinema, which means I, I want I want it to be representative of different eras and different genres. I don't want to pick, like, four movies by the same director or, or a, you know, a bunch of movies in the same genre or from the same country in the same time period. So I wanted to kind of spread things out. I wanted it to, to kind of complement the list I put together last year. So, like, there's... I'll spoil it right now, and there's no other Wong Kar Wai movies on my list this year because <laughs> I had Chunking, Chunking Express on the list last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so something like that. As for, like, actual criteria, I mean, they're all movies that I love. They're all movies that I can watch again and again. They're all movies that I think are really great and really important movies. And the Ranking movies is a ridiculous activity. Like, the whole, <laughs> the whole idea is totally pointless. Just like podcasts. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, uh, like I say, I'm with uh, Letterboxd. I rate everything on a scale of like three to five stars. And it's because the star ratings are, are arbitrary. Like, movies are great, and it, you can't say one is greater than another because they're just great. Have you seen Ghost Dad? I have <laughs> seen Ghost Dad. Will it be making your list? It is a terrible movie, but when I, and that's not what I'm talking about. Like, there are bad movies and there are good movies, but if you're, like, splitting hairs between Seven Samurai and Chunking Express, that's just ridiculous. I mean, they're both great movies, and to say that one is better than the other is, is, is arbitrary. Right. Sure. I'll buy that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not possible to come up with a definitive top ten movies of all time. So that's the attitude I went into this with. What, what about you? What kind of criteria did you use? Uh, I like working within boxes, preferably boxes within boxes within boxes. And so I had a lot of rules for myself this year. Basically, in a nutshell, um, I wanted to pick a film from each decade, starting in the 20s and going to now. So um, that way it gives a representation of you know the history of cinema, and you can get you know dip your toes into any period, really. Um, and then I also limited it to one film per country to give it a global, you know, view. Including the U.S.? Including the U.S., although my U.S. pick 
And I guess we can talk about this when we get to it. The U.S. My U.S. pick is actually from a British director. <laughs> ah. But uh, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. Oh, and then my other um, rule was I had to pick a film that was not in the top 50 of Sight and Sounds ah. list. Um, just because I'm cooler than those people. That's so a good, That's a good rule. You know, when you do a top 10 list... Or top 50, but, you know, especially, you know, with the top 10 or top 5, the omissions speak louder than what's included. So I would also like to make the, you know, disclaimer, uh, I, I want to apologize to any female directors out there, um, you know, and there are a lot of great female directors, uh, Claire Denis, Agnes Varda, uh, Nina Paley, I'm sorry, Kelly Reichert, I'm really sorry, but you're not on the list, and I feel bad about that. Also, to anybody of African descent... You you didn't make my cut either. It's not doesn't mean I don't like you. I I just I was working with what I had. With only ten slots, there's inevitably going to be. I know. I just get left you out. know. I don't want to be crucified here for being a white it, male. It, it annoys me that whenever <laughs> lists come out, the discussion tends to be on what was excluded, right, rather than what was included. Because the whole point of the list is to celebrate the inclusions, not to exclude things. Sure. So it's, you know, it, we're, we're very easy in our critical community to say... To be fair, I am a misogynist and I'm racist. Yeah. You know, th- th- I'll put that out there. I just, I do feel bad about that. Uh, Mark Cousins put together a 15-episode, like, 30-hour documentary on the history of film. And he covers, you know, a massive swath of film history from the very beginnings up to the present day all over the world. With special emphasis on highlighting, you know, under underseen and underexplored filmmakers and, and film cultures. The first thing people say about his documentary is that they don't like his voice. Mm-hmm. because his Northern Irish accent sounds weird to Americans. And the second thing they say is... Why didn't he spend enough time on this guy? Why didn't right. he spend enough time on this guy? He did a 30-hour documentary on the history of film. Come on. Give the guy a break. Well, he, he is a jerk. Yeah. I, you know. um, Speaking of which, uh, Turn Classic Movies is running that documentary all this fall, and they're, and they're playing a whole bunch of movies along with it. They just started this last week. Uh, check it out. Check it out, yeah. kids. So with that, let's get let's get onto the countdown. We're going to start with a with a clip from one of the most obvious choices on my list, <laughs> and one that is in the Sight and Sound Top Fifty. Loser. Well, Dora, I've had one motto which I've always lived by: dignity. Always dignity. This was instilled in me by mom and dad from the very beginning. They sent me to the finest schools, including dancing school. That's where I first met Cosmo. And with him, I used to perform for all of Mom and Dad's society friends. They used to make such a fuss over me. Then, if I was very good, I was allowed to accompany Mom and Dad to the theater. They brought me up on Shaw, Moliere, the finest of the classics. To this was added rigorous musical training at the Conservatory of Fine Arts. Then we rounded out our apprenticeship at the most exclusive dramatics academy. And in all time, the motto remained dignity. Always dignity. All right, that was, of course, a clip from Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly's Singing in the Rain, 
one of the more obvious picks on my list. I uh, I tried to have a mix of more idiosyncratic picks with you know more more well known and well beloved movies, and so there's there's three kind of really obvious picks on my, on my list this year, and Singing in the Rain is one of them. Uh, one of the biggest regrets I had with the the top ten list I put together last year was that there were no musicals on it. So I definitely wanted to include a musical, and I I don't know that it's arguable that any any musical is greater than than Singing in the Rain. Uh, it's about the adoption of of sound in Hollywood, so it's got this weird meta element. It's got a great love story in it. It's really really funny. It's got Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds, and Donald O'Connor being hilarious and dancing and singing, and it's just it's a it's a tribute to the whole history of musicals, and it just encapsulates everything that I love about Hollywood. Yeah, it's it's a perfect entertainment. It's perfectly packaged and. Its joys are endless, and it's just a treat from beginning to end. Yeah, we talked uh, a couple weeks ago about the Marx Brothers, and and you mentioned the scene in uh, Hannah and Her Sisters when Woody Allen is very depressed, and he goes into a theater and watches Duck Soup, and then he realizes that life has meaning. Uh, in, in Crimes and Misdemeanors, Singing in the Rain is the movie that, that Woody Allen watches over and over again whenever he gets depressed. He just owns a, a print of it. And it's, it's a pretty it's, good it's choice. That, it's that kind of movie. It's, sure. it's just a movie that, that you could always watch and you'll always be happy. <laughs> well, I'm glad you picked a musical because, uh, you know, some of, well, my movies have musical elements in them. There are two pretty heavily music-influenced uh, ones, but they're not out-and-out musicals. And I'm really glad to see that it, it made it on here because, you know, some of those quote-unquote lower genres uh, don't always make it into like definitive top 10 lists it's 10 it tends to go for the serious arty you know which is great stuff you know but there's yeah. it tends to be you know a heavy musicals and comedies tend to get tend yeah. to get short shrift in favor of you know ingmar bergman movies or something right yeah and there's and there's a lot of great musicals and, and i love musicals and i would love to have picked something a little more obscure but you know the, the bandwagon american paris the gang's all here and the umbrellas of shoreberg or something you know, those are all great movies, but none of them are as great as Singing in the Rain. Like, I, it's it's a it's a flawless movie to me. Some people seem to have a problem with the the Broadway melody sequence in the movie. Uh, I think those people are crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's you know you can't argue with that pick. I would you know Devil's Advocate say Umbrellas of Cherbourg uh, could easily fill that spot. Um, they're totally different movies. Yeah, um, but it, if you wanted to. Pick a nominal uh, musical. I think that one is a worthy uh, opponent of that. Um, and I think of an American in Paris, uh, you know, other another Gene Kelly film, uh, is also astounding. Um, it, I think it's a very very good film too, but probably not as good as Singing in the Rain. Well, I'm not. I'm not. These are not being presented in any order. Uh, I wanted to get that that first obvious one out of the way first, and then the rest of mine are going to be in chronological order. Do you have any particular order you're going to present yours in? Well, I was going to go. I mean. So, obviously, since I'm picking a film for each decade going chronologically would make logical sense. I don't like making logical sense, so I'm going to kind of just... You're telling me. I'm going to be bouncing all over the place here um, with my choices. Um, Maybe I'll be riffing off of what you had just said or something. So, and that's why for my first pick, and, and also, you know... When we say ten, top ten list, we also want to you know say that the order that we're listing these is not the order of quality. The last one I'm talking about is not necessarily any better than the one I'm about to talk about. Absolutely. So, um, 
But tying in with your, you know, picking um, Singing in the Rain, I am going to pick the film that has the most music um, out of all the ones that I have selected, and it's also one of the most obvious picks on my list. Uh, it's The Red Shoes mm. um, from Powell and Pressburger, which is the film that I was most shocked to see is not in the top 50 <laughs> on Sight and Sounds list, because how do you not put The Red Shoes at the top of, of your list? I think I think the problem was that there was a lot of vote splitting with the Powell and Pressburgers. So there's The Red Shoes and Madden Life and Death and Colonel Blanche. Sure. I, I can see that. Um, and, and, you know, I've discussed... Colonel Blimp, especially on the show before, and so I don't want to get into that whole discussion again. Um, and I love that movie. I just got two copies of the Blu-ray for my birthday. Um, <laughs> thanks, family. But to me, you know, The Red Shoes is still the pinnacle. It would be the pinnacle of anybody's career. You know, and the Archers made, a, you know, I don't know, not a zillion, but they made a, a string of just perfectly realized wonderful, sumptuous films, and I'm sorry, The Red Shoes is top of that list. Um, I believe it's Martin Scorsese's favorite film of all time, and who's who's going to argue with Martin Scorsese on it? Um, and it's it's based on the Hans Christian Andersen story, um, and it takes the dance of The Red Shoes, um, the ballet, is integral to the film, and it's about Moira Shearer plays a dancer who is torn between being an artist um, and pursuing her passion and creating something of artistic merit in this world or accepting her love. And she's torn between, you know, her romantic life and her artistic life. And it's, it's just a devastating movie and it's gorgeous to look at. And it's another, like I said, when we were talking about Colonel Blimp, Powell and Pressburger movies are almost overstuffed with great characters and plots and moments and but the, none, nothing gets short shrift here I mean it's all so juicy and and you know it's, it's just a fantastic movie yeah it's, it's a great movie I mean it it, it made my my top 10 last year it's it is one of my favorite movies it's uh I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by the love triangle in the red shoes between between Moira and her husband the uh the composer's uh Mary's Garin mm-hmm. and uh Anton Walbrook and Anton Walbrook as the the director of the ballet company and, and Walbrook is he's fantastic in, in Colonel Blimp but I th- I think the Red Shoes is is my favorite of his performances. It's interesting like I don't I don't see him as the villain of the film like he kind of gets like the villain lighting. For me, Marius Garion is is the much more villainous character because he's the the husband who wants to be married and be able to express himself artistically while his wife is just a homemaker is just a homemaker right like he's the one who wants to to confine her whereas Walbrook wants her to you know reach her artistic potential right he wants her to excel and yeah I I, I absolutely I, I I feel the same way I mean it's a movie that I don't think there are it's not a clear-cut you know who's a villain and who's not there's not like dastardly right. especially twirling. because as the movie starts Garion is is one of the two heroes like we we have his point of view right from the very beginning of the film yeah so at the end to see him you know be more marginalized and less heroic is is a an interesting turn yeah yeah it's an endlessly fascinating movie and it's a movie that you know doesn't have uh, easy answers and that's why it's so rewatchable and um, it's just it's just great. <laughs> I mean, I have a fear that I have a fear that this show is going to turn into me just saying it's great. <laughs> yeah, 
But that's okay. It's that's, it's, that's, it's, it's our cheerleading episode. These so. are our great movies. So, Ra Ra the Red Shoes. My my second pick is is the oldest film on my list. is from 1912, and it's D.W. Griffith's The Musketeers of Pig Alley. Is this a film which you are familiar with? I'm familiar with it uh, insofar as I know that you saw it. Um, I remember, I think you wrote it on your blog, or I saw it on Letterboxd or something. And I've seen a couple of people that have seen it. It's on YouTube. Um, yeah. It's, it's super it's, short. It's readily available. It's it's, uh, it's about 20 minutes long. Yeah. I think it's a, a two-reel. Yeah. It's uh, it's basically a the prototype of a gangster movie. Is Lillian Gish and her husband lived live in this uh, slum, and they become involved with like the local gang. D.W. Griffith is is generally considered like the the first most important pioneer of early cinema. He's he's credited with inventing all kinds of things that he didn't actually invent, but he did popularize and he did perfect the use of things like uh, the close up and cutting intercutting between scenes in order to maintain parallel actions in different locations at the same time uh, like you get in like a chase sequence or something like that and in 1912 he has already mastered all of these techniques like uh, one thing that bothers me with with film studies and film histories is they basically start with the birth of a nation and they say the birth of a nation is this horribly racist movie but it's so innovative that we have to watch it and we have to teach it but it's it's not that innovative. Griffith, there's nothing that Griffith did in Birth of a Nation that he didn't already do in A Corner in Wheat or Musketeers of Pig Alley or A Girl Under Trust. So I think I think there's too much emphasis on this first big blockbuster movie. Well, do you think it's the epic nature of Birth of a Nation that is the reason that it's kind of the one that people go? To? I think I think it was a big hit when it came out in 1915. Uh, it was a massive hit. Yeah. And it just stuck in people's mind. And it wasn't until decades later that people realized, hey, it's kind of racist. <laughs> I hey, mean, people, people realized it at the time. You know, it got banned in various cities. The NAACP was protesting it back in 1915. But the vast majority of white people either didn't think it was racist or didn't care. Right. So it became a staple of film studies and became a staple of film criticism. You know, it's just a reference all the way back to Birth of a Nation, the first great movie. And it's not the first great movie. There's lots of great movies before 1915. And there's no reason for Birth of a Nation to have the elevated status it does in our culture. But that said, you know, it's it's still an interesting movie to watch. And it, it still should be watched because all of Griffith should be watched. And, you know, at least all of all of his his features from his like prime period, from like 1914 through the the mid 1920s, those are those are all really really fascinating movies. But there's no reason to privilege Birth of a Nation over any of the others, like Intolerance or True Heart Susie or Orphans of the Storm. But my favorite of them is is The Musketeers of Pig Alley, and it's not just because it's short, and it's not just because it's so early and so influential. It kind of it, it doesn't invent the gangster genre, but all of the, the tropes that we will come to see later in the gangster in the gangster genre, like a criminal with a heart of gold, the you know, the the ingenue who is attracted to him even though he's kind of a criminal, all of that is is there in this little short film. You picked it because of the title. Let's face it. It does have a great title and it does have Lillian Gish. And I love Lillian Gish and I could not have a top ten movies without Lillian Gish. <laughs> she was in Night of the Hunter on my list last year and, and she's back here again in the Musketeers of Pick Out. Sure. Yeah, it's one I've been meaning to see. Um, I actually don't think I've ever seen any Griffith. Uh, I know there's that uh, print of intolerance that's kind of been circulating around lately, played uh, San Francisco and it hasn't come to Seattle, has it? 
I don't think it has. I don't know. Yeah, um, maybe it will soon. But I, yeah, I mean, you know, he's one of the gaps in my knowledge. Um, but I, I look forward to seeing that. Uh, well, my choice, my next film, uh, I'm I'm jumping forward to the '70s, and I was thinking about the new wave, the French new wave, which is obviously huge. You can't you can't overestimate you know how powerful that movement was and how how many great films came out of that time period um and this one kind of came out later about a decade after the the birth of the whole you know french new wave and i'm going with jacques revet's uh celine and julie go boating uh sean nods because he's like yeah no what (laughs) no duh um (laughs) celine and julie go boating uh, i've only actually seen once uh on a vhs i got from scarecrow God, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, but uh, it's never left me since then. Um, it's it's totally a unique masterpiece. Um, it's three plus hours long, and it follows Celine and Julie, who are these kind of quirky French girls who, you know, they're not like contemporary quirky girls, you know, they're, they're, they're cooler than all that, you know, uh, Zoe de Chanel crap that's going on, but they, you know... They're kind of manic pixie dream. They're kind of, but they're on roller skates and they're French, so it's okay. And one of them works in a library, so, you know, key to my heart. Mm-hmm. So, but the film is really interesting because it shows them kind of running, you know, rampant through uh, contemporary Paris and, and, you know, like I said, roller skating and doing these little pranks and stuff. But then they get sucked into this, I don't even know how to describe this, but they, they get sucked into this kind of... Uh, boudoir melodrama uh that's playing out it's like a henry james story right you know some it's like a turn of the century melodrama yeah they get there's this this house that they end up like temporally you know (laughs) entering into and they kind of are involved in the proceedings of this story within the movie that story plays out in sections throughout the film, and they they kind of wake up from their experience with that, with these candies in their mouth, and it's just bonkers. But it's 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 movies. It's movies, yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of like Alice in Wonderland, you know, down the rabbit hole and stuff. But yeah, it it just makes me giddy. I mean, I really love Celine and Julia Boating. Yeah, the their interaction with the story is is the way that we interact with with a movie they're they're watching it take place and they're not really understanding it because they come in in the middle so they're like trying to figure out what what is going on and then they have to you know rush off before the end and it gets all jumbled in the editing and they're not really sure which what is happening when and then finally they just get fed up with the movie that they're watching they're not happy with it so they enter into the story and begin changing things around which causes you know the whole fabric of reality to to collapse but it's it's so they they take their their game playing in the real world and they apply it to the movies they they encounter this this ghost story that they encounter and it's just the, a perfect expression of like the the mutability of reality of the changeability of it how it's it's just a game that we play yeah and i i i feel bad for Celine and Julie because Unlike, you know, Godard and Truffaut's works, uh, many of which have come out, um, you know, in the States, you know, on Criterion, uh, Selena and Julie has not uh, found, you know, a, a distribution. There's, there's been rumors of a Blu-ray of the, the restoration print that made the rounds a couple of years ago for years. Yeah. 
Um, and, and, that, and that's kind of one of the reasons I put this on, on the list as opposed to something like Breathless or, you know, something else from the new wave is that I think more people need to see Celine and Julie if they can. Like you said, it was touring around. It played here uh, a year or two ago, and um, it's just as good as, you know, top-of-the-line, you know, Godard, Truffaut, or, or what have you. And so, yeah. Absolutely. If you, if you can track it down, even if it's on a crappy VHS print, do it. Do it. There's a there's a uh, I think a BFI DVD of it that's that's pretty decent. I think that's what we played when we ended up playing it. Uh, we couldn't wait for the print. We had to play it on, <laughs> we on played video. Up. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, see it in any way that you can. Yeah. Uh, my third pick is another silent movie. It's The Ducks of New York by Joseph von Sternberg. Sternberg's more famous for his collaborations with Marlene Dietrich, starting in uh, I think 1930 with Blue Angel. That might be talked about later in the show. They made uh, <laughs> five or six movies together. I can't remember the exact number. But uh, for me, my, my favorite of his is, is this one made in 1928 with uh, George Bancroft as, the, uh, as like a guy who shovels coal on a steamship who comes into, into town for a night and uh, rescues a girl who tried to kill herself. And then they all get drunk. And they have a, a kind of a farcical wedding, and he spends the night with the girl, and he's going to leave the next day, but he finds himself drawn back to the girl, and, and it's it's all very romantic, and Sternberg fills it all with these marvelously cluttered frames, like the night scenes are, you, you've never seen shadows as black as Docks of New York. And just everything about this movie is is like the ultimate in the kind of decadent Joseph von Sternberg romanticism, and I absolutely love it. Is it in that box set that came out recently? It is. It's uh, the Criterion set of, of three uh, Sternberg silence, and it's uh, which is a must own. Yeah, I I I, sh- I should own it. <laughs> um, well, my next pick is going to be a film from 1930 from a director named Joseph von Sternberg called The Blue Angel, and it does start Marlene Dietrich um, and. It, I think what's so great about the Blue Angel, uh, well, among the many great things about it, but, well, I should set up what the plot is of it first. Emil Jannings plays this studious, serious, scholarly professor type um, who, you know, thinks he's better than everybody and what have you, and he ends up falling for Marlene Dietrich, who's a cabaret performer uh, in this, you know, rowdy, raucous, you know, smoke-filled theater and the film is about his descent from his lofty you know academic heights um into this underworld you know this world based around the theater and stuff and it's it's really it's a bummer but it's a really great movie um and Dietrich is fantastic Jannings is fantastic and the movie's been described as a, a means of like passing on the torch um from one acting generation to another because Jannings was very famous in the silent era, you know, biggest actor of the time. Not just physically, but also <laughs> he's a big star. <laughs> he's a big man. Yeah, a huge star. Um, and But this was kind of one of his last roles. Yeah, uh, he, didn't, he didn't transition all that well to the sound era. Even though he's fantastic in this. Yeah. Um, but, and then Dietrich, who is what, unknown, relatively unknown, steals the show in this and, and went on to have this long storied career in, you know, the uh, sound era. And it's just, you know, Sternberg can wield a camera. I mean, it's, it's, and the story's just, just 
fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's a much darker film than Docs of New York. Docs, <laughs> Docs of New York is romantic, and it's you know, Blue Angel is is like the dark side of romance. It's it's Janice gets caught in this horrible sexual obsession that just leads him on this downward spiral and to utter destruction. And there's you know there's a couple takes on on Dietrich's character uh, Lola in the film. Like, is she you know consciously trying to destroy him or? My my read is that she feels sorry for him, but she just can't help herself toying with him. Yeah, I, I could, because because I think that's just her nature. Yeah. yeah, I mean she it's not just him that she does that with, but he's since he's not from her world, he's much more susceptible to it, and he's he's not he's never he's never encountered a woman like Dietrich before uh, in his life, and and that's ultimately what. Yeah. Downfall. I, I don't think she looks at him and laughs. I think at his, you know, destruction. I think she looks at him and, and sighs at how pathetic men are. Right. Yeah. Because she's yeah. She's she's waiting in it, but she's also above it. Yeah. Um, yeah and it's it's great. I like uh, some of the later Sternberg Dietrich films more, like uh, uh, Shanghai Express and Morocco and uh, The Devil Is a Woman. But the Blue Angel was was the first, and it is a really good one. It's really good. Uh, and the last thing I want to say about Sternberg, um, Sternberg also not only was a great director, but um, has the greatest title for any autobiography ever, which yep. is uh, "Fun in a Chinese Laundry." <laughs> which, how do you top that? It's I, just great. I have that. I've, I've started to read it. I have not finished it. Though. Yeah, I've been meaning to read it for years. Just on the title alone, it's that great. He, is, uh, he was a, a fascinating character. All right, uh, with that said, we're going to listen to a song. This is the song that you have picked. Yeah, so, uh, you know, every week I try and pick some music that fits with the theme of the show or whatever, and uh, this week I'm picking songs about numbers, so uh, here's DJ Shadow with the number song. Two choices are are probably the two most obvious picks, other than other than singing in the rain on my on my top ten. And uh, with number four, I'm going with Jean Renoir's Rules of the Game, which is a, a perennial occupant of the Sight and Sound uh, top ten. But 
it's well deserved. It it really is one of my favorite movies. It's I have seen it more times than I can count. I just I love everything about it. I talked about it uh, several episodes ago as my essential love triangle pick, even though it's not really triangles. They're more like multiple intersecting rhombi. But uh, yeah, I love everything about Rules of the Game, and this was. Uh, this was kind of a difficult choice for me because the the other competing, you know, kind of classical French movie that I was going back and forth with was uh, Marcel Carnet's Children of Paradise, which I love, but I had to, I had to go with the obvious choice here. You know, they're obvious for a reason. Yeah. You know, I mean that's that's just the nature of the beast. They're people like them because they're good. <laughs> <laughs> That's my quote of the year. Yeah, it's a great pick. Well, speaking of France, uh, and I just did my Rivette, and you would assume that my French pick would have made it into the 60s, but it was the 70s, so this opens up the 60s for me, uh, which is great because I picked, as you picked, um, Singing in the Rain is the definitive musical for your list. You know, another genre that does get overlooked is Westerns. So I'm, I'm flying to Italy. And we're talking about uh, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, which uh, is, to me, it's the greatest Western of all time. Leone famously didn't actually really want to make the picture. I think he was kind of burnt out from doing Westerns. Uh, you know, he'd done, he'd done the Man With No Name trilogy with uh, Clint Eastwood. And, but he kind of got corralled into doing this thing, and so he decided to make the anti-Western, or at least to take the tropes of the Western and flip them on their head. Uh, most famously in here, you get Henry Fonda, who for decades was the quintessential hero um, in John Ford Westerns and, and you know non-Westerns too, playing just the sleaziest villain you can imagine, and he's so good in it. And Once Upon a Time in the West, it's a movie I love so much that I can't even really articulate how, <laughs> how much I love it, but um, not only is Henry Fonda great, but uh, the, the the rest of the cast, Charles Bronson uh, plays a man named Harmonica who has a shady past that um, it's kind of teased out as the movie goes along until you get this kind of slap in the face uh, reveal at the end that really just blows your mind, and Jason Robards is in it, Claudia Cardinal is in it, and it's, it's an ugly movie, it's dirty, it's vicious, but it's also incredible. Incredibly beautiful, you know, thanks in part to Marconi's score, um, which includes um, Farewell to Cheyenne, I believe is one of the songs on there, and uh, Harmonica's theme, which is great. And I think it's better, you know, some people argue Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is Leone's best and the best Western of all time, but to me it's really no contest. I think Once Upon a Time in the West is the end-all, be-all. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I... I, I... I think it is too. I think, you know, I'd probably go with The Searchers as the best Western ever, just by default. I mean, it's also, you know, kind of the obvious pick. But Once, what, once Upon a Time of the West is it, is it has more of the things that make Westerns great than any other movies. It's it's so expansive. And one of the reasons why, why I, I say that Seven Samurai is my favorite movie of all time is because it contains more of the things that I like in movies than anything else. And going by that criteria, then Once Upon a Time in the West would be my favorite Western. Sure. Yeah, and, you know, it's not to say that, you know, you just need to see Once Upon a Time in the West and then your Western, you know, knowledge well, is Well, of done. course not. There's but, like a hundred Westerns you should see. Uh, 
And I'm actually just I'm just finishing up uh, the recent book on the Searchers and the history behind it, the story that it's based on. You know, Cynthia Ann Parker's um, abduction, and uh, it's it's a very very good book because you know I I got it to uh, just learn about the production of the film, which the book deals with, and there's some really interesting John Ford stories in there and, and, and Wayne stuff. Um, but the first half of the book is is really this historical, putting it in a historical context, and so I, I recommend the book and watch the movie, but that's a digression. Yeah, last year in my top ten, my, my biggest regret was not having a musical, and this year uh, my biggest regret with my top ten is not having a Western. There's no, I don't have a Western choice. Well, that's why I'm here. Yeah, I'm here to, you know... Clean up your mess. get 20 movies instead of of 10. That's right. Uh, My next pick is probably the most obvious one. It's the number one film from the last year's Sight and Sound poll, Vertigo, by Alfred Hitchcock. And I don't don't know that I have anything more to say about Vertigo. It's, It's such a difficult movie to talk about, and yet it has been written about so much. Like, it doesn't... It can't be contained in words. Like Vertigo is a movie that can only be you can only you can only watch it because you try and put it into words, it doesn't make any sense. No. Like I mean, not just like the mechanics of the plot, which literally don't make any sense, but there's just something you know fascinating about about Vertigo. It's a spellbinding movie, and it's it's absolutely uh, hypnotic. And every time I see it, I get sucked more and more into it. It's one of the the very few movies I've I've seen that gets better and deeper and more mysterious and more confusing, more profound every time I watch it. It's a great pick. I've said this before and I love Vertigo. I think it's, it's phenomenal. It's, you know, one of Hitchcock's greatest masterpieces. The one thing that distances me from it just a little bit is Kim Novak. I just, I can't make that leap to that obsession. Um, I, I think she's the weakest element in the film. Um, I think she's the weakest of. Uh, I think. I think. That, I think. You know, Kim Novak has a certain blankness to her as an actress, and I think that's that's perfect for her part in Vertigo because she's not playing a character so much. I mean, she's playing three different characters, right. but really, she's just a projection of the ideas that that Jimmy Stewart has about her. I understand that. I just it doesn't. I can't totally buy into it because of her. Um, if they if they had put somebody else in there, obviously you know someone with more personality, like your you know Grace Kelly or your Ingrid Bergman or something, I would love it because of them. It, it wouldn't work. I don't. I I think those. Those two actresses are much better actresses than Kim Novak, but I don't think either of them work in Vertigo. I I understand that. I just and yet she's still the one thing that keeps me from loving it completely. Like, well, I think the only, the only solution to this is that you need to see it at least 10 more times, <laughs> well, preferably in a theater, because it's one of those movies that, uh, the first time I saw it on like VHS 20 years ago, I was like, eh, yeah, that was okay. But then as I, you know, saw it more, more and more often on VHS and on DVD, you know, I started to, to like it and more and more, and it would creep up my, my top Hitchcock list, but it still wouldn't be, like in the top five. Then a few years ago on uh, Valentine's Day, I saw it at the at the film forum on on film, 
and it was like a revelation. It was it was a totally different movie. And the film form screen is not a big screen, so it wasn't like the the sensory experience of seeing it in the film. Just just something about seeing the movie in an auditorium uh, made it a more special experience. Well, and speaking of that, I was gonna save this for uh, I think a week from now for my rep pick or or whatever, but. Um, in Seattle, we were lucky to have um, the restored Cinerama Theater um, that is one of, I think, two theaters that can actually run true Cinerama with three projectors um, in, in, still in existence. And every year after the summer, blockbusters have come and gone from playing on Cinerama's giant screen. They do a 70-millimeter festival, and they the schedule's out now. And, you know, they play the same movies every every time because there, there are only so many movies you can pick from. But, you know, they do 2001. They do Lawrence of Arabia, which I saw last year there. It was fantastic. Um, and then they do do, um, you know, the true Cinerama experience with How the West Was Won. And, um, but they are running in 70-millimeter Vertigo um, at the end of this month. I don't know the dates, but um, it's very tempting for me to get out there. Unfortunately, the in-laws are coming to town, and I may be... Take, a... take them with you. I don't know if they'd like that. We're actually going to go see Airplane uh, with them at Sips. That them. would be a great double feature. <laughs> Airplane and Vertigo. Yes. Two, well, two movies that you can get totally lost in. That's right. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that the one American production that made my list was actually directed by um, a British man, um, and it also stars a British man. It was written by a British man, and it's Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush is my pick um, from 1925. I was wondering if you were going to go with Hitchcock or Chaplin. <laughs> yeah. And this actually ties in with what you were just saying uh, in a couple of ways. Not only the fact that Chaplin and Hitchcock were, you know, British uh, filmmakers working in America, but speaking of revelatory film-going experiences, I, I recently just got to see uh, The Gold Rush at the Slapstick Festival. Um, the Gold Rush is probably the slapstick movie feature that I've seen more than any other in my life. Um, as I mentioned on previous shows, I grew up watching these movies, and I owned a Chaplin box set. It was like seven VHS tapes, and they were all shorts, and then the only feature I owned was The Gold Rush, so I watched that more than any other when I was growing up. Um, but I hadn't, since I'd seen it so many times as a kid, I, when I got older, I kind of started gravitating more towards City Lights, and uh, even the later stuff, like Verdu and all those other ones. Um, and I didn't really revisit The Gold Rush because I felt like I've just seen this too many times. But seeing it now, um, in my 30s, it was the strangest, most amazing experience because I remember the beats of the movie perfectly. But I remember them from the eyes of a 10-year-old boy. So I remember the comedy in the movie. I remember the dance of the dinner rolls. I remember, you know, the great scene where uh, Chaplin's trying to avoid the, the shotgun as the two guys are wrestling with it. I remember all those things, but the over, <laughs> like, the the crushing loneliness and sadness of the gold rush was completely, you know, missed by me as a kid. It was one of the most profound movie-going experiences of my life. I'm just going to say it. I was weeping like a baby at this screening of, of the gold rush a week and a half ago. Because the dance... That's of, fantastic. That's great. Yeah. I was, I was, I was just completely... One uh, just bowled over by it. Um, I was sitting there, and you know, there's the scene with the dinner rolls, the famous scene, the most famous scene in the movie, where Chaplin, you know, sticks two forks in the dinner rolls, and he mimes dancing, you know, as they're his dancing feet. And you've seen that that scene, you know, out of the context of the movie so many times, and other clip shows and stuff like that. 
Um, and it's hilarious when you see it, you know, that scene. But in the context of the movie, it's devastating because it's his daydream of how he's going to entertain these women when they come to his house and yep, how everybody is going to like him. And nobody shows up. And I was watching the dance with the dinner rolls, crying my eyes out through a, a wall of tears. I mean, it just blew my freaking mind. And, uh, you know, I used to, you know, my knee jerk was, Gold Rush is good, but City Lights is is his true masterpiece. But I'm, i I got to go the other way now. I really think the Gold Rush is his supreme achievement. And I believe Chaplin felt the same way. He felt the way that way about the recut version of 1942, where he cut, edited the movie and added uh, narration. Yeah, I don't care for that. No, that's no good. Even as a kid, I saw that on PBS or something when I was a kid, and I said, what's wrong with the Gold Rush? This is no good. Uh, but the 1925 version of the Gold Rush is the most moving uh, portrayal of loneliness I've ever seen. It's it's awesome. <laughs> My favorite chaplain is is usually uh, whichever of, of the Gold Rush, City Lights, or, or Modern Times I've seen most recently. Yeah. Uh, City Lights was the, the hardest movie for me to cut off the list. This was my number 11. Like, I, I went back and forth. Even even this morning, I was still going back and forth between City Lights and, and another comedy, which I'll, I'll get to later. Yeah, The Gold Rush is great, and Chaplin is great, and, and he gets he gets this this rap as, as sentimental, whereas Buster Keaton is more intellectual, and he's more of an artist than Charlie Chaplin, but... I think I think Chaplin is the greater filmmaker. Like we we had this uh, this argument on our uh, on our blog for Metro Classics years and years ago of why Ch- Chaplin is better than Keaton, why Keaton is better than Chaplin. I I still prefer Chaplin. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think your argument was very weak at the time. Um, I feel like I really laid out my case for Keaton uh, better. <laughs> With that, we're going to listen to the Pixies. Okay, welcome back to the show. We're hitting the uh, second half here um, of our top ten lists for uh, this year. And as I mentioned at the top, I'm, I'm kind of globetrotting here um, with my choices. And we've been to Britain, we've been to France, we've been to Italy and Germany so far. Um, and, you know, I was thinking of, like, neglected filmmaking countries. You know, those ones that we just talked, or I've talked about so far are some of the big 
biggest names in filmmaking. Um, and then obviously, you know, Hollywood. But so I was thinking about Canada, you know, the, I think Canada kind of, you know, gets the short end of the stick a lot there. You know, people don't really talk about Canadian cinema that much. Um, and there are a lot of really great Canadian directors. You got your Adam McGoyans, you got your, uh, David Cronenberg's, you got your Guy Madden's, you know? So let's hear a clip, uh, from my choice for uh, Canadian film. Is it strange for him? Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Seriously? Yep. Get ready. Get ready, bitches. Yeah, what's going to happen if this plan don't work, eh? The old man will put us out of the house. We'll have no place to sleep. Yeah, I could live in this van, eh? I don't need no Take place. off. You need money to live or you'll starve. Well, this plan sucks. I ain't going in. You are too. I'll tell the old man you gave away his beer money. Okay, okay, you boss me around. Morning, George. All right, you Betty. Give me 12 fresh air con Twelve, you got gold. Have a nice day. That horse ran like a fun mess. Yeah. <laughs> See you tomorrow. Okay, take it easy. Well, Elsinore. Twelve. Twenty-four. Oh, yeah, sorry, twenty-four Elsinore beers. Twenty-four. Yeah. Twenty-four Elsinore. Fourteen-seven. I believe there'll be no charge on this two for uh, a beer, thank you. Excuse me? Okay. We found this mouse in a bottle of Elsinore beer that we bought at your beer store, eh? And we heard, like, when that happens, that uh, you get your beer free. It's in the Canadian Criminal Code, eh? Yeah. Like, there's legal precedent setting cases in law. So, like, uh, give us our free beer. You want free beer? Go to the brewery. Now get out of here before I put the two of you in a bottle. You sure you don't want to take this over? I'm sure. Okay, we're going. Yeah, see you. Okay, and that's obviously a clip from Strange Brew, um, co-directed by Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas from 1983. And Strange Brew, you know, it's my left field pick. Obviously, it's coming out of you know nowhere here. But I, I, I was thinking about this, and we talked about this earlier in the show. You know, the musicals, the westerns, don't get a lot of uh, love in these kinds of lists, and comedies mostly do not, you know, um, looking at my list as I was compiling it, The Gold Rush is the only one that's ostensibly a comedy, and as I just said before the break, I was crying the whole time I was watching the damn thing, Sure. so, um, and I don't think Strange Brew is the greatest comedy of all time, um, but... That's Duck Soup. That's Duck Soup, um, but Strange Brew, I still, it's, it's, it's a pure comedy, it's really funny, and of all the movies on my list, besides The Gold Rush, it's the one I've seen more than any other because it is so rewatchable. Um, and I think the movie, it, it's, it is better than a lot of its ilk. The film uh, is loosely, and when I say loosely, I'm talking, so, I mean, it's not even near, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but... It's Hamlet. The, yes. The film is loosely based on Hamlet. Very loosely. It, the brewery is named Elsinore, and there are these little, you know, tidbits, but you don't have to be familiar with the Shakespeare play to, to know what's going on here. Probably helps if you're not familiar. Probably with helps, yeah. Then you'd be nitpicking it. Um, but the movie's based on the characters Bob and Doug McKenzie that uh, Moranis and Thomas played on SCTV, and they're, you know, these exaggerated Canadian beer-drinking guys, you know, this. They're like, you know, Bill and Ted, but, you know, from the Great White North. Right. Uh, and the film, 
is they get caught up in this mad scientist story because basically they wanted to scam free beer. They put a rat in a beer bottle and thought they would get free beer out of it. And it's just hilarious. I don't know what else to say about it. I needed a movie from the 80s, and Strange Brew pretty much sums up the 80s. And uh, No, it, it's, a, it's a great movie. It's, it's really funny. Like, I think comedy doesn't translate well between generations, so I wonder if, if any of our lo- younger listeners have, <laughs> even, have even seen Strange Brew or think it's funny. Like, uh, a blind spot for me is like comedy of the, the 50s and 60s. Like, for some reason, it, doesn't, it just doesn't make me laugh all that much. Sure. Uh, generally speaking. But uh, I was seven years old when, when Strange Brew came out. So I'm right in that target audience. Like, I, I think it's funny. It's a, it's a great movie. It's, it wouldn't be my pick for early 80s comedy. You know, I would, I would go with Airplane or Caddyshack or uh, maybe like Ghostbusters or Stripes ahead of Strange Brew. But it's right in that area, and it's a you know it's a perfectly reasonable choice. I think Strange Brew is better than all those. Uh, Airplane is the closest one that, that comes to it. But uh, remember, I had to work with Canada here. I, I couldn't go to the states, so that was well, part of my. Bill, Bill Murray's Canadian, isn't he? He is, but you know, I'm talking directors here and, and where the film. Well, Harold Ramis is Canadian. That's true, but it wasn't made in Canada. Uh, but Reitman's Canadian. You know what? Shut the fuck up. Um, <laughs> The, the great thing about Strange Brew, too, if I, can, if I can just go on a little tangent here, what I love about Strange Brew is it, it has that great opening scene where it's Bob and Doug's movie, not Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas's movie that we're watching, but right. it's the premiere of their film, this low-budget, sci-fi, when I say low-budget, it's like $5 budget for this thing, um, this sci-fi film. Um, and it's and it's the premiere of that, and so we see it's like a meta thing where we're seeing the characters' movie in the movie, and the plot doesn't really ha- uh, start k- kicking overdrive until the audience rebels because it's the worst movie of all time, and it's you know they get driven from the theater, and and but to me that's why Strange Brew is so great is that it does something that. It's kind of clever and tricky to it. You know, it's not just a stupid, dumb comedy. It does no, these funny bits, too. Yeah. You know, so... It's a great movie. Yeah. yeah. Nothing wrong with you with <laughs> picking Strange Bro. That's right. Yeah, no problem with that. <laughs> oh, my pick is uh, almost totally opposite of Strange Bro, and it's uh, Yesidro Ozu's last film, An Autumn Afternoon. Uh, it's not uh, one of his most acclaimed movies. That would be That would be Tokyo Story or maybe Late Spring. But for me, like I said with Seven Samurai, I like things that contain a lot of stuff in them. And An Autumn Afternoon, for me, contains everything that I love about Ozu. It does have one thing in common with with Strange Brew in that there was a lot of drinking in it. (laughs) And there's always a lot of drinking in Ozu movies, but usually it's kind of marginalized. Like, Ozu was a a great drunk himself. But like uh, like most of his movies, especially from his later period, it's kind of a a domestic melodrama about a a father who's trying to get his daughter married. But the story's a little different in that it it also contains domestic scenes from a a younger generation. The guy's uh, son is married, and they're having economic problems. So, you know, it's, it's, it's more of a total look at middle class life in Japan in the in the post-war era, and it's so, so sad. Uh, the father figure is played by Chishu Ryo, who is, who is uh, the paternal figure in most of, of Ozu's great movies, and it's one of his best performances. He's, he's this very old man who 
just wants to drink. He just wants to get his daughter married off so he can drink and live alone by himself and kind of relive and think back wistfully on the war era. And it's so... The the World War Two is this kind of unspoken thing in, in most of the Ozu movies. There's always like an absent parent or an absent uh, uh, boyfriend or husband that, that died, and that's why the daughter is unmarried. Um, but it's it's most explicit in An Autumn Afternoon, where Chichirio is at this bar, and he meets one of his uh, former uh, uh, comrades-in-arms, who's uh, the guy who plays uh, Shichiroji, the samurai in, in Seven Samurai. And they sing songs of their time in the Navy, and, and it's all very sad and melancholy and drunken and lovely. I need and to see it. I, I, you know, I, my Ozu, we've talked about this before. I've, I've seen, you know, some of the heavy hitters. Uh, you know, I've seen Tokyo's Story, and I've, I, I saw, uh, I think the first one I saw was Good Morning, which I saw years and years and years ago. But a lot of the ones that are named after... Good, Good Morning has more fart, fart jokes than any other Ozu. But it's <laughs> that, which is why I gravitated jokes. towards it, yeah. <laughs> obviously. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the, you know, the ones with, uh, you know, Autumn, Summer, Spring, I haven't watched um, because I don't know where to start. You've given me advice and i just it's it's daunting but i need to watch more ozu yeah you do now once once you once you start watching ozu it's really hard to stop because his movies they seem very similar but the more you get involved with them the more the more welcome all of those repetitions are it's not oh look it's another straight ahead close-up shot it's like oh it's another straight ahead close-up shot well i'm not afraid of that I'm really yeah, not. It is fantastic. And and I talked about On Autumn Afternoon much more coherently and much more in-depth on uh, this other podcast I do, uh, They Shop Pictures. Um, we did a, an episode on Ozu, and we also did one on, on Joseph von Sternberg where we talked about the Docks of New York. So if you want to hear more coherent thoughts about that, you can, you can listen to those shows as well. Or if you just want to hear Sean's mellifluous voice more than well, what you're going to get on this show. Who wouldn't? <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, my pick, my next pick, uh, I'm going to go, since you did your Japanese pick, I'm going to go with my Japanese pick now. Um, I'm going with Kurosawa. I didn't want to do Seven Samurai because it it is the most obvious pick of the obvious picks. Because it's the greatest film of all time. Because, yeah, you and my girlfriend both say it's the greatest film of all time, and I don't disagree with you. I really don't. It's, it's fabulous. I'm going to go see it on Monday at SIF. I can't wait. I'm really excited. But... I wanted to talk about Ikiru because I feel like that movie, even though it's it's critically acclaimed and beloved and stuff, I feel like, and this might just be my perception of it, is that one's kind of getting pushed aside a little bit. I don't know why, quite why that's happening, but it's a fantastic movie. Uh, Takashi Shimura plays this middle-aged bureaucrat who has never really done anything with his life. He's kind of just this boring guy going through his days, you know, going to work, going home, who finds out that he's got six months to live. He's got a diagnosis of cancer. And it kind of kicks him into overdrive in needing to do something, anything, before he dies. Um, Not to leave a legacy, but to make the world a better place. And he does it in a very small way that doesn't draw attention to him or, or, you know, anything. And it's... A devastating movie, and the reason that I I like this movie so much, besides Shimura's performance, which is fantastic, it's the Kurosawa, the the way the plot plays out 
is kind of interesting. Like, there's a second half to the picture that you don't expect to happen. That's what makes this such a great movie. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's like the the thing that distinguishes it from other kind of feel-good, you know, (laughs) make make something of yourselves, you know, one man can make a difference kind of movie. Like, if this was in Hollywood, it would have a triumphant ending where he, like, builds the park and everyone celebrates his great accomplishments and, like, the theme music goes off and then you see, like, oh, he died two weeks later. What Kurosawa does is... You know, it's this long first two-thirds of the movie where his life is meaningless and he keeps trying to find things to fill, to make his life, you know, worthwhile with the short time that he has left and everything fails. And then he he comes up with an idea and then the movie, you know, fades to black and And comes back and he's dead (laughs) and is at his funeral. And so the rest of the movie is, is, takes place at his funeral where we see it's, you know, some flashbacks to what he did in the interregnum. But it's mostly narrated by people who had no understanding of what he was going through, of what his life meant, or what the whole purpose of this film that we've been watching is. Which is just, it's it's devastating because he did this thing, and we know he did this thing, and we know that, you know, we get all of the feel-good elements of it, but Kurosawa makes it twisted and bitter by recognizing the fact that nobody else sees the value in what he did. Yeah, they're all, everybody that shows up at his wake and that is kind of, you know, discussing him, kind of, even though they, they feel just obligated to be there. They didn't know anything about this guy. and yeah. uh, They're like his fellow bureaucrats. Right, but they, they don't, under, yeah, like you said, they don't understand what's going on. But then Kurosawa drops the, the final shot of the film, the end of the film, which is obvious, but so simple and beautiful and tear-jerking. I mean, it's just fantastic. Shimura, you know, comes back at the end, and it just makes it all worth it, and it's just a phenomenal movie. Yeah, it's a great film. I I don't know that it's really getting a bum rap. Like, it, it seems to me like it's the film for, it's the Kurosawa film for people who don't like Kurosawa films. You know, every time I pick a movie and I say this is a good movie, you're like, well, yeah, it's good, but it's the one that people that don't really get this guy, you know, that's the, that's the one that they I like. I said that. You said that last week about uh, In the Mood for Love. Oh, uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's, that's just the kind of guy you are, I guess. You're the guy who doesn't like things. I guess so. <laughs> that's what it is, apparently. But, uh, no, but it is a fantastic movie. Um, I, I, I feel like maybe... People, a lot of people dismiss, or not dismiss, but, you know, they focus on this, the samurai movies for Kurosawa and ignore or just don't bother with the contemporary films, which is a shame because High and Low and, you know, Stray Dog and all those other great films that he made are, are equally as good as Hidden Fortress or Yojimbo or something. Um, but then I think, I don't know, maybe it's something like the emotions in Akiru or the way that it plays out, I feel, I don't know. I don't know why, where I'm getting this sense that people aren't giving it the love that it deserves, but people should give it love. Yeah, well, it, it doesn't it. have Toshiro Mifune. It stars Takashi Shimura, who's, who's just as good an actor as, as Mifune, but he doesn't really have, like, the star presence, right. which would be totally wrong for this role, but... Yeah. Put Kim Novak in there. <laughs> it's a great film. Uh, my next pick is the one that, that narrowly beat out uh, City Lights, and it's Jacques Tati's Playtime. Tati, Tati is a, was a, a French comedian. He was a mime. Uh, 
his movies play out a lot like silent comedies. There's lots of visual gags, but he also integrates a lot of uh, really like hilarious sound effects. And, and Playtime is is kind of his big epic masterpiece. And he built this entire city on the outskirts of Paris, and it cost him millions and millions of dollars. And the movie was a, a flop, and it basically ruined his career. The film is basically just a series of, of gags about people mis-encountering each other due to the absurdity of modern architecture and modern uh, appliances and modern chairs and, and design. It's just this, the whole design of the 20th century keeping people apart. And that's a, that's a recurring thing in, in Tati's films. That's also a, kind of a sub-theme of, of Mon Oncle, the film he did previously. But it ends in this long extended sequence of this restaurant, this fancy new restaurant that's just been built and, and all of these people crowd into it on this, this packed night and then proceed to systematically destroy everything about the restaurant and reclaim it on human terms. It's, it's the destruction of the modern and creation of a, a whole new society out of chaos. And it's just beautiful and it's hilarious. I need to see it. I, I, I've seen uh, Mon Oncle and I didn't care for it. Uh, it just didn't work for me. It was years ago. I should give him another shot, but it really just, I didn't find it funny. I, there was some visual stuff that I was like, I thought was very clever and I appreciated it like from a distance, like intellectually. I was like, oh, that's cool. Um, but I, I just didn't, it didn't win me over, but I, I know Playtime is supposed to be his masterpiece and I need to see it. Um, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday is probably like the most immediately accessible Tati movie, like it, it's the most obviously entertaining and funny. Is it the one for people that don't like Tati? No, <laughs> that would be that would probably be playtime. But uh, it's it's if you're going to start to watch a, a Jacques Tati film, I, I would suggest Monsieur Loves Holiday first. But I, I love all of his movies. He he, he only, only did he only made like a half dozen yeah. of them. But but playtime is one of like the great examples of cinema, and it's one that you need to see on the, as a bigger screen as possible. I'll try my best. Well, <laughs> going from uh, hilarious hijinks of Jacques Tati, uh, I'm going to talk about one of the most devastating movies um, that I've seen in recent years. Korean cinema has kind of been at the forefront in the last decade or so. Um, I, Film Spotting is about to start a Korean cinema, uh, Korean auteurs you know, marathon or what have you, uh, which is much needed. I think it's, I think there's a lot of great Korean directors out there and stuff, but to me, Lee Chang Gong has done the best work of the stuff I've seen. I've only, you know, I've seen the Bong Joon-ho stuff. I've seen, um, you know, old boy and all, you know, but Lee Chang Gong, he's a little more reserved. His movies are a little quieter. Um, and in 2007, he made a movie, which I've talked about before called Secret Sun Sunshine, which is just, devastating <laughs> this thing is just it's it's fascinating and and I, I feel like I could watch I've only seen it once but I feel like I could watch it numerous times it's not like a you know so devastating it rocks your world and you don't want to re you know experience it again but um, the movie is about a widow who returns to her husband's hometown with her child um, and she's kind of grieving over his death and stuff and then a terrible thing happens. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you what the terrible thing is, but uh, it throws everything uh, out of whack, even more so than it already was. And it's her dealing with her emotions after this horrible event. And um, 
what's really interesting about the movie is it she there's a large part of it where she attempts to find solace in religion, um, and the movie is very even-handed with its take on religion. Um, there's no, you know, you don't really feel, you know, Lee Chang Dong's feelings on it one way or another. Her character, and I can't pronounce her name, I'm really bad with names, but Jean D. Yan, um, I believe is her name, she's the, the um, main person in the film, and she she's the mother, and she gives just a fantastic performance, and her character is skeptical of religion and then gives it a shot and then comes to her own conclusions and stuff. But it's a very, it's a very mature movie that is just an emotional roller coaster. And uh, I believe Film Spotting will be talking about it during their marathon. Uh, I think it made the cut, which is good because it's totally awesome. Yeah, I don't know. They've been they've been talking about what movies are going to include in this marathon for for months. It seems like, and and really the only. My only interest in it is is getting them to watch Hong Sang Soo. Hong Sang Soo, Hong Sang Soo. I know. I've only I've only seen one Lee Chang Dong film, and it's uh, poetry, which I thought was was good, but not of all of like the the Asian minimalist films that have come around in the last thirty years. Uh, it was not you know near the top of my list. Okay, uh, I, I I like I, poetry. I, I, I haven't seen Secret Sunshine, so I, I like poetry a lot. Um, but Secret Sunshine is is so 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 good. It's 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 his best. It's the best Korean film that I've seen from this millennium. Not that I've seen a, a zillion, but I've seen my fair share. So. Yeah, and I've, I've I you know I've seen a lot of Chinese language movies from the last thirty years or so. I haven't seen that many Korean other than Hong Sang Soo movies. I just love <laughs> Hong Sang Soo, and I will talk about him just to irritate you because you haven't I don't seen any. <laughs> I have. Uh, in another country, sitting right next to my DVD player. I, I was going to watch it this afternoon, but you know what? I might watch um, How to Train Your Dragon instead, just to piss you off. I hate you. <laughs> uh, I did like poetry more than uh, Bong Joon-ho's Mother, which has a very similar plot. Yeah, thematically they're, they're, they're similar, but um, poetry's less obvious and... Uh, less icky. Less icky. I do, I do like Mother, though. I, I found Mother pretty enjoyable. But anyway. We're going to listen to a music clip now. This is uh, another one of your choices. Yeah, uh, this is Sparks doing the song, Number One Song in Heaven.
next choice is going to be another kind of obvious one uh, because I am not all that creative. I'm going with what is my choice as the greatest romantic comedy of all time. Sleepless in Seattle. Close. <laughs> Annie Hall. Ah. Uh, Woody Allen starring Diane Keaton. It's kind of the anatomy of this relationship that went wrong as... Woody's uh, brain tries to reconstruct the relationship and jumps forward and backwards in time and has all kinds of, you know, hilarious events and scenes and lines. And it's just a movie that I've loved ever since I saw it when I was, I think, 16. I first saw it and it just instantly, I fell in love with Annie Hall the same way Albie Singer fell in love with Annie Hall. Well, Carol Kane's in it, so that explains it's everything. It's got Carol Kane, it's got <laughs> Shelley Duvall, Christopher Walken, Jeff Goldblum, yeah, Marshall McLuhan. Yes, yeah, the Marshall McLuhan part. Yeah, uh, Annie Hall, it's cool to pick a different Woody Allen movie, um, you know, Manhattan or Hannah and Her Sisters, which are both masterpieces in, in, in their own right, but... Um, I kind of had a similar experience to what I was talking about with the Gold Rush earlier a few years back, um, seeing Annie Hall. when They struck new prints of his 70s stuff, and I saw that at the film forum. And Annie Hall is just, it's the it's its so good. It's just, it's just freaking awesome. Um, and it totally deserves all the accolades it's received. And I, I, love, I love so many Woody Allen movies, but I, I really do think Annie Hall is probably the best. When I was when I was in in high school, I, I recorded off of uh, HBO. I think uh, I had a VHS tape that had Annie Hall. I started with Annie Hall and then ended with Casablanca on this one tape. And I just used to rewatch that tape over and over again. You know, just late at night, I'm getting ready to go to bed. I stick in the the tape of Annie Hall and I fall asleep. You know, halfway through Annie Hall and I wake up for the end of Casablanca. And I actually wore that tape out. I watched it so much. Like they're just they're just movies that I love. Yeah, th- nothing wrong with that. <laughs> uh, speaking of movies that you love, my pick, my next pick. I you know I don't know how much more we can say about it since uh, we spent so much time talking about Wong Kar Wai uh, last week on the show. But um, my pick for 1990s is going to be Chungking Express. Um, which, yeah, like, what do I say beyond what we said last week? But Chunking Express is, it's the Annie Hall of uh, Wong Kar Wai films, in a way. It kind of sums it all up. It's it's just endlessly fascinating. Um, it's, two, it's like dual narratives. The movie's split in half. The two stories, you know, relate with one another. They're both law enforcement officers that uh, fall in love. And um, you famously... Or infamously, for a spell, we're watching. You you would watch Chunking Express every year on your birthday. Do you still do that? Uh, I haven't for the last couple of years. Uh, this last birthday was was just a couple of days after my son was born, so there wasn't much movie watching going on. That's a darn shame. Yeah, yeah, Chunking Express. It's it's um, it's a great birthday movie though, because that's one of the the passing of time and, and your birthday is one of the the themes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of themes going on here, and the performances are great. Um, you know, Tony Long, who was in The Grandmaster, is in here doing that thing that he does so well, and uh, Fei Wong is fantastic. I mean, the whole... Takashi Kaneshiro, Bridget, Bridget Lin. Lin. Yeah, um, the, and we said last week, the music score, uh, musical choices um, are, are really great in this repetitive, you know, playing out of California Dream and, um, and the Cranberries Dreams. And it's just a, it's, it, you know what it is? Chunking Express 
remember when Amelie came out and everybody was taken with Amelie? And I like Amelie. I'm not one of those people that just likes, you know. Yeah, it's cute. It's cute, you know. Uh, But Chunking Express is like the pure version of Amelie, you know. It's infectious. It makes you giddy with delight. You kind of want to, when you finish watching Chunking Express, you kind of want to, you know, go dancing down the street or something. It fills you with glee, you know. The first time I saw Chunking Express, what, what I did immediately after was rewind the tape and watch Chunking Express again. There you go. And there's, you know, there's a few movies that, that as I was growing up, I did that with, but Chunking Express might have been the last one. I was actually, I, I was writing about uh, Ashes of Time last week, Wong Kar Wai's Wuxia film, and something struck me about, about it in relation to, to Chunking Express is that uh, throughout Wong's movies, his, his characters are, are constantly in a state of regret for something that they failed to do in the past. Like there, there was a, a woman that they loved, but they didn't act on that. And so now in the future, they're looking back on that with longing and, and regret. Say so they, were, they were trapped for whatever reason by these, these poor choices that they made. Uh, Chunking Express, the, the heroes in the second half of Chunking Express are the only ones that kind of break out of that trap. In, in Wong's films. Like, they, they actually bend reality to their own whims as opposed to being locked in this cycle of regret as Takashi Kaneshiro's character is in the first half as he's pining for the woman who left him. Only, only Fei Wong and Tony, and Tony Wong's character are actually able to get past a past relationship and move forward into the future. So it's, it's the most hopeful of Wong Kar Wai's films. Yeah, I could, yeah, definitely. Because like even even something like Happy Together, which is all about getting over a relationship that's gone wrong, is so seeped in the sadness oh, of that, that relationship, and and you know the Tony Lung character in that film is moving on, but it's it's it doesn't feel hopeful in the way that Chunking Express does. Yeah, yeah, Chunking Express, it's a great movie. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. I mean, it's, it's Seven Samurai, I say, is the greatest film of all time. And Chunking Express is probably my favorite movie of all time. But I'm going to pick another Chinese language film for this list. And it is uh, Ho Shao Xian's Good Men, Good Women from 1995. Now, if I, if I had to pick a, a greatest director working today, it would be Ho Shao Xian, even though he hasn't worked in way too long. He's supposedly making a, a Wuxia movie called The Assassins, which has been said to be coming out for the last five years or so. And I'm really looking forward to it. But Good Men, Good Women is kind of the, the culmination of a trilogy of films that, that Ho did dealing with the history of Taiwan in the, 21st, in the 20th century. Uh, it, uh, it takes place in, in two different time periods, along with a third story that is about the making of a movie based on the earliest time period. There's the story of these Taiwanese people who go to China to fight the Japanese during World War II. And there's a contemporary story with an actress thinking back on her past relationship with a gangster who would like supply her with drugs. But she's since gotten clean and is getting a job acting in a movie version of the story of the Taiwanese people who went to China in the first film. 
And all of these three stories are, inter are intercut and connected, and we see parallels between this woman who is a revolutionary, who's, you know, like a, a committed communist, but she come, when she comes back to Taiwan after the war, she's persecuted for being a communist, even though she had, you know, fought the Japanese. Uh, and we see that as paralleled with the story of this, you know, kind of young, uh, drug-addicted woman who hangs out with her sleazy boyfriend. So it's just kind of this fall from generational status, from people who are fighting a war to people who are just kind of self-destructive. And the actress is using the story of the woman that she's playing in the movie to come to terms with her own life and to make her own life better. So it's just this way that we integrate the past into our present to help explain it and to help uh, make us better people. And we use cinema as that vehicle. That sounds really interesting. <laughs> so it's great, you know, and, and that's one of my, you know, one of my favorite themes is the way that we use cinema to, to help explain ourselves. Sure. And yeah, Good Men, Good Women, it's, it's probably not the most acclaimed Ho Shan film. It's probably A City of Sadness, which is the first film in, in that uh, history of, of Taiwan trilogy. His uh, 2001 film Millennium Mambo is is a really great movie that uh, that I love a lot, but I had and has always been my favorite Ho Shao Shen film. But the more I think about Good Men Good Women, and I saw I watched it twice last year to uh, get ready for a podcast on in which I talked about it. Um, I, I think it's I think it's his best and. It, the best film by the best director working today. <laughs> it's got to be on the list. I need to check it out. I need to check it out. Well, for my last pick, I bring it to the present day. Um, you know, we're, we're in the 2010s now, and we're it's still an infant decade. So, you know, I didn't have too much to choose from. Um, and once again, I was trying to pick world cinema, um, and I'd, I've done a lot of the major uh, countries. And so I keep coming back to this film, and I don't think if I make a top ten at the end of this decade that this is going to make my top ten. I don't, I'm pretty sure it won't, but I had a really great time with this in the theater. I've talked about it briefly on the show before. Um, it's uh, Pablo Berger's uh, Blanca Nieves, which is uh, a silent retelling of Snow White um, in the world of matadors. And it's, as, we said, as I said before, it's everything the artist isn't uh, <laughs> and it's got a wonderful performance at the center of it um, from Maribel Verdu who plays the wicked stepmother and she just chews the scenery like there's no tomorrow but it's so fantastic because it's it, since it's a silent movie everything is really melodramatic but in a in a good way it 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 it, it pops off the screen it's supposed to be larger than life everything is heightened and there are these great little flourishes and touches that. Um, Berger throws into the movie these, you know, imposing skulls on a poison apple and um, these visual flourishes. Um, and it's, it's, it's uh, you know, just a fable. It's a beautiful little fantasy. And it's a story we've seen a zillion times before, told in an interesting way. And it's really pretty. And I like it. It sounds great. It's it's one of the uh, the big films from last year that that I haven't managed to see yet. But it sounds like it's it's like coming out on video. So I'm I'm looking forward to, to picking that up soon. Yeah, it's it's definitely really worth a watch. One. It's really fun. Yeah, I really want to see that one. Um, my last pick, my most recent pick, is The Big Lebowski. Ooh, nice. 
we were talking on Letterboxd this week with with a friend Kevin about uh, favorite Coen Brothers movies, and for me, there's no contest. It, it is The Big Lebowski, and it's, it's nothing else is even close. I, lo- I love Miller's Crossing, I love Raising Arizona, but Lebowski contains so much. Like I had a friend who, when he was in law school in the late '90s, early uh, early 2000s, had a videotape of The Big Lebowski, and he would basically just watch it every day. And he said that. Once you have seen it enough times, you 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 enter in, uh, into a kind of Lebowski consciousness where you see lines from the movie or situations from the movie become relevant to everything that you encounter in your day to day life. Like the Big Lebowski explains the world, and there are very few movies that that contain that much. I love the Big Lebowski. This is yeah this this conversation that we had on Letterboxd actually has kind of spurred me to do a project. I'm not sure if I'm going to see it to completion or not, but the new Coen Brothers film, uh, Inside Lewin Davis, comes out in uh, December. And so I've got just enough time to watch a Coen Brothers movie a week in chronological order. Hopefully I will have something to say about it and maybe write about it on my blog since I haven't been writing at all. But that's the thing with me and the Coens is that so many of their movies do that for me. Like, like you say it's no contest, but for me, this discussion we had in Letterboxd showed me how much of a contest it is because every Co- I've, I like every Coen Brothers movie I've seen, and I've seen every one except for The Lady Killers. Um, you know, I think Intolerable Cruelty is fine. It, you know, it's, it's their weakest, but it's fine. But those top five, six, seven movies of theirs, in my opinion, they are those things where they're so full and so deep and so rich, and there's so much to get out of them. And Lebowski is, I, I think it was my number three on that list. Uh, Man Who Wasn't There was number one, and uh, A Serious Man was number two. But The Big Lebowski, you're right. It, it, it explains the world. It, it, it's hard to talk about The Big Lebowski because it's so, it's so kind of present. Yes. Like, everyone has seen it. When it when it came out in 1998, it was panned. I actually uh, went to see. I think I may have told this story before, but uh, when it came out in '98, uh, I was at the movie theater with my dad. We were at the multiplex, and we were coming out of seeing uh, the Thin Red Line. And it was an interesting moment because I came out of the Thin Red Line, and I was 17, and I was like, "That movie was incredible! Holy crap! I didn't know movies could do something like that." And my dad said to me, sorry, son, because he thought it was bad. Um, and we're walking down the hall, and I ran into this guy I knew from high school, uh, just an acquaintance, and he was coming out of The Big Lebowski. And uh, I said, you know, just chit-chatting. So what did you see? Um, uh, yeah, I just saw The Big Lebowski, and it it was really bad. And I was already a Cohen fan. I, I just hadn't seen that yet. And I said, I, I was like, that can't be right. That's not computing. There's no way. But it's funny to see the rehabilitation of The Big Lebowski, because... A lot of people felt that way when it came out, and, but it's it's hard to believe now because it is such a part of the consciousness in this country, in the world now. Yeah, I, I saw it uh, the first show, the opening Friday at uh, some theater in St. Paul. I think I was visiting a friend of mine who's getting married next weekend, and uh, and we went and saw it, and the theater was sold out. Like it was just a packed auditorium and everyone was just laughing hysterically all through the movie. So, you know, we, th- we thought it would be a big hit because packed auditorium, everyone seemed to think it was hilarious. We get, we go, we go back to his apartment and Siskel and Ebert is on. So we're like, let's see what Siskel and Ebert thought of the Big Lebowski. Two thumbs down. Yeah. They didn't like it. It was the follow-up to Fargo, and it wasn't as serious a movie as Fargo. Like, the Coens are just fucking around. They're not being ambitious, you know, artistic filmmakers. Like, 
you know, we praised them so highly for two years earlier. Well, that's, I mean, you know, not, not to, not to attack a Siskel and Ebert review from 20 years ago, but that's, years ago. whatever, uh, that it's so funny because clearly Lebowski is the more audacious movie of the two. Fargo is, you know, it's, it's a tot, small picture. Fargo, Fargo is, uh, to, uh, repeat a phrase is the Coen brothers movie for people who don't like Coen <laughs> brothers movies. I love, I love Fargo, but it's, it was not in my top five. You're right. Um, the, the thing with the Coen comedies is nobody else makes a comedy like the Coen brothers. Like their sense of humor is the Coen brothers sense of humor and no one else can touch that. And, but they tap into something so incredibly hilarious and, and every character they create down to the smallest one is fully realized, has a backstory that, you know, you know is fascinating, you're intrigued by them, and um, I, I call them the greatest writers of our time, you know, filmmaking-wise. I mean, they every script that they create is, 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 is on a level so much, better, so much higher than anybody else working. They're just great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're terrific. I, you know, I love the Big Lebowski. What can I say? The Dude Divides. Welcome back to the show. That concludes our uh, dual top tens for this year. Uh, so is this going to be a thing we're going to do every year? Is that the plan? Yeah, the idea is to do it every year until the next Sight and Sound poll, and at which time we'll have like a whole hundred of top ten movies, except you'll have 98. <laughs> That's right. Okay, I, I guess I'm signed on for that. Um, next week on the show, tying in with the wedding of your friend... My buddy, my buddy Will's getting married. He's a he's a big fan of, of horse racing and of horses. So we're gonna we're gonna do a a couple horse movies. We're gonna talk about Carol Ballard's The Black Stallion, which was one of four year old Sean's favorite movies. And we're also gonna talk about uh, Stanley Kubrick's film noir The Killing with Sterling Hayden. Yeah, and we'll also talk about uh, the career of Stanley Kubrick, um, and we'll pick our cinema essential cinematic animal so get ready for that um if you're in santa monica or somewhere around there next week on the 12th um you should go to the arrow theater the american cinematech uh down there and see the double feature uh of charlie Lotta and the music room uh from Sachajit ray 
that plays at 7.30 only on the 12th of September. Uh, if you're in Austin on the 12th of September, you got to go see at the Austin Film Society. They're doing a series of movies that were banned. And on the 12th, they're playing Sergei Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible Parts 1 and 2, which are some of the craziest looking movies you will have ever seen. They're fantastic. Uh, Eisenstein is famous for his like montage series and silent cinema, but as he got into sound movies, he became much more interested in like weird set design and everything. And Ivan the Terrible got banned because uh, Stalin looked at it and thought it looked a little too familiar. <laughs> cool. So it was originally supposed to be a trilogy, but uh, part two got banned by Stalin, and then Eisenstein tragically died um, too young, uh, which, as far as I know, was not Stalin's fault, but you can't rule you it out. You never know. Anyway, Ivan the Terrible, great movies. Go see them if you're in Austin. Cool. Uh, and with that... We are done for this week, so uh, you can always find more information on the show at our website, thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com. We've updated the show calendar um, for the rest of this month, so you can uh, you know find out what's coming up and maybe play along at home. Uh, you can contact us uh, on Twitter at geosandershow or through email, uh, if anybody uses email anymore, at thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com. And taking us out today is not going to be George Sanders. It's going to be the George Sanders of female jazz singers, Anita O'Day, with Cole Porter's You're the Top. Take it away, Anita. And the words poetic, I'm so pathetic that I always have found it best. Instead of getting them off my chest to let them rest unexpressed. I hate parading my serenading as I'll probably miss a bar. But if this ditty is not so pretty, at least it'll tell you how great you are. You're the top. You're the Coliseum. You're the top. You're the art museum. You're a melody from a symphony by Strauss. You're a bundle ball in a Shakespeare sonnet. You're Mickey Mouse. You're the Nile. You're the Tower of Pisa. You're the smile on the Mona Lisa. I'm a worthless check, a total wreck, a flop. But a baby on the bottom, you're the